Welcome to the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast. I'm your host, Mary Jolkowski. I'm an author, speaker, and all-around self-love advocate. And this is the podcast that'll inspire you to love yourself. Hello, self-lovers. Today, we have Tori Dunlap joining us on the show. And you may know her from TikTok or Instagram because she has like millions of followers. She's at her first 100K. And she shares a lot of tips and tools for building wealth and becoming debt-free and saving money and just all the financial education that we didn't receive growing up. Tori Dunlap is an internationally recognized money and career expert and podcast host. After saving $100,000 at age 25, Tori quit her corporate job in marketing and founded Her First 100K to fight financial inequality by giving women actionable resources to better their money. She has helped over 3 million women negotiate salary, pay off debt, build savings, and invest, which is a big thing that we talk about today on the show. Host of the number one business podcast, Financial Feminist, author of the upcoming book, Financial Feminist, and Adweek's Finance Creator of the Year, Tori's work has been featured on Good Morning America, The Today Show, The New York Times, Time, People, New York Magazine, Forbes, BuzzFeed, CNN, CNBC, and more. Now, Tori travels the world writing, speaking, and coaching about personal finance, online businesses, side hustles, and confidence for women. We talk a lot about this confidence aspect, specifically how it applies to financial confidence, and this branches from this idea that women are less financially educated than men. And I know that does not sound good because it's not. It's quite shitty, actually. But Tori explains why that is and how to change that. So this is a very empowering and actionable conversation. And she also talks a lot about how to ditch the shame around money and instead fuel that energy into educating yourself and investing your money so that we essentially fight the patriarchy. She calls building wealth a form of resistance. So without further ado, please welcome Tori Dunlap from At Her First 100K on the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast. Hi, Tori. Welcome to the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I realized I should have made myself a cup of tea to come on, but then I forgot. So I'm just drinking classic water. (laughs) Yeah, it's okay. I'm drinking classic water too. I'll forgive you. It's getting really hot in Arizona. So the tea is turning into iced tea real quick. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Where are you at right now? I am in New York City. I'm in Brooklyn and I've been here for about three weeks and I'll be here for about another three weeks. A childhood me's dream was to live in New York and I don't think I want to do that full time, but I wanted a taste of it and I actually I like it more than I thought I would. And so, yeah, it's been really, really great. I haven't spent much time in Brooklyn. Whenever I visited New York, you know, you, you spend a lot of time in the city. And so it's been really great to to come and yeah, just experience, you know, different places. Living here for a little bit is just really fun. Yeah, that's what scares me about going to New York too much is like I'll like it too much and then want to stay, but it's just so overwhelming in certain ways. That's why I knew I didn't want to live in New York, but I was like, okay, let's check, you know, let's let's go live in Brooklyn. Brooklyn has much more of a neighborhoody feel. Well, and Brooklyn's still so big. So I'm in Bed-Stuy and it's just much more neighborhoody. It's chiller, it's chiller vibes than, than the city. So you've been bopping around all over the world? Yeah. So I packed up my apartment at the end of August and went to France and 
Ireland for September, Italy for October, came back to Seattle, lived in an Airbnb on the beach for November, December, was supposed to go to Vancouver, and Omicron flared up. So got a different Airbnb in Seattle for January, February, and then was in LA before this, and New York's the last stop. I thought I had more in me, but uh, I'm tapping out <laughs> New York. That's my last stop. And then I'll obviously continue to travel, but I'm going to resettle, get a new apartment and resettle back in Seattle. Why did you want to do the whole digital nomad thing, especially after post-pandemic? Like, what was that experience like? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I was kind of planning on doing it before the pandemic hit. I quit my job in 2019 to run my business full-time. So it was like, it was late 2019. It was like November. And so I started 2020 and I had a six-week trip to Ireland booked and then obviously couldn't take it. And so there was, you know, that itch to try it out. I love traveling, love going different places. I have realized though, the digital nomad life is not for me. I really need routines. I need my own space. I'm very much like a nester. Like I miss my plants. I miss having that stability. I miss, okay, you know, that's where I go and take bar classes or that's where I go to the gym. When you're constantly moving, right, it's very exciting, but you're also constantly going okay, I need to go completely reshop for groceries and for like, you know, spices and like all the things you like don't think about. You're like, okay, I need to buy all of that again yeah. every like six weeks. And it's been so great. And I'm single. I don't have pets. I don't have kids. I don't have a job that keeps me in a specific location. So it was like, if there's ever a time to try it, it's right now. So it's been really fun, but yeah, ready to tap out. Yeah, well, that's what's great about being financially free is you could have a home base and then travel wherever you want, but you're not technically nomadic. I was reading a couple articles because I was doing that for a bit, not to an extreme, but just not really having a home base. And one thing that I think a lot of people don't realize is the loneliness. I mean, you cannot nurture a friendship. You can make friends. You can't nurture it because you're going to be leaving soon. Even if you can do long distance, you don't know when you're going to see each other next. And it just becomes a bit isolating. There's a couple articles on Medium that I started reading where people are like, you know, what they don't tell you about being a digital nomad. And it's so true. Loneliness is such a big one. Right. I didn't even mean to do this until you just said it, but realizing I was in Seattle longer than I expected. So, you know, I have my community in Seattle. When I went to Europe, I went with my best friend. So, you know, I was with her constantly. And then I went to LA and New York where I have friends. So I feel like I have had a little bit of community in all these places. And I have a completely remote team that I talk to every day. So it's not the same as being in person, but I have a little bit of that. So yeah, I've gotten really lucky where I just saw my business partner last night who lives in New York and we hung out and got fried chicken. And like, I have those communities in a variety of different places. But I will say too, it's been interesting realizing just how independent I've become like, I love hanging out with myself. I'm my favorite person to hang out with. And so like two nights ago, I wanted pizza and there's this incredible pizza place that's 10 minutes away and everybody kept telling me about it. And so I grabbed my book and I walked down there and ordered my pizza and a glass of wine and sat there and read my book. And they came out and they're like, would you like dessert? And I'm like, yes, I would. And ordered a <laughs> cup of tea. And, you know, it's total bliss for me is going places alone. Like I went to, yeah, an art exhibit this past weekend alone. And so for me, it's been less about the loneliness and more about just not feeling as grounded as I need to be. And also realizing, I don't know if I've talked about this publicly, but like I work with a coach and I was chatting with her about, you know, this whole experience and how I was feeling. And I realized that the business is always going to be a little unstable. 
it's always going to be a little unpredictable, right? Because like things are happening all the time and we're growing, which is all really exciting, but it's, it's very, obviously very emotionally, mentally demanding. And that's really hard to balance with your personal life also being very chaotic and demanding. Yes. And so for me, it was like, again, you don't learn this until you go, but it was like, okay, I am a more rested person. I am better off and I'm able to show up for the chaos in the business when everything else is not as chaotic. When again, I have all of my kitchen and all of the things I need to make myself good food. And I have, yeah, my bar studio that I like going to. And so that is one thing I've realized and discovered is as much as I've loved doing the pick up and move, live out of two suitcases for a while, it's been very turbulent and you just don't expect it until you start going. And for me, like if I had a more like stable, consistent nine to five job where I kind of knew what I'd be doing all the time or like could sometimes phone it in, like I think it would be a little easier. But again, not complaining about any of it. It's just a really interesting, yeah, an interesting thing that I did not expect. So yeah. What were you reading at the pizza place? Oh, I'm re- I was just finished The Alchemist. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I hadn't read it before and it was, yeah, it was really cute. And now I'm reading, actually for another podcast, I'm reading Wishful Drinking, which is Carrie Fisher's, one of her memoirs. It got asked to be on this podcast called Celebrity Book Club, where you read like a memoir by a celebrity and then you talk about it. So they sent it to me in the mail like two days ago. And so that's my next book I'm reading. So yeah. Wait, that's so cool. I love The Alchemist. It's sometimes required reading for the retreats that I host. I oscillate between that and the four agreements. I just feel like they're they're staples. I feel like The Alchemist was really lovely and I'll definitely come back to it. I think I had hyped it up too much in my brain because I had heard like so much about it. And so it was one of those where I read it and I was like, okay, that was good. Like moving on. So yeah, I'm maybe it needs to sit and simmer a little bit. But yeah, it was um it was beautifully, beautifully written. Yeah, for sure. So tell us about the origins of her first 100 K and how you got started. I want to know everything. Like, what did you do before? Why did you start your, it was a TikTok. That was the big way that you started talking to other people about it. We had been going for a while on Instagram and, you know, a blog. We had been around three and a half years before we started on TikTok. TikTok just blew us up. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. So I was lucky enough to have parents who are really committed to educating me about money. And I saw them make really smart, frugal choices. I saw them save money. I saw them spend money really thoughtfully on things that they loved. And I was really their investment. So like they didn't grow up with a lot. And so they were really committed to making sure that I had, you know, a really stable, good childhood. So, you know, any money that they had saved really went to, you know, my good school, my piano lessons, that's kind of thing. And I grew up thinking that, okay, everybody knows how to not overspend on credit cards. Everybody knows how to save money. And of course, I realized that that wasn't the case when I graduated really high school and going into college. And so I majored in communication and theater in college. I originally wanted to be an actor, still very much want to be, but I had the practical side of myself that was like, I don't know if I want to continue to do that and sustain that and not have 
stability. And so I really love the storytelling aspect of theater and decided like, okay, I think I can take, you know, a lot of what I love about theater and become a marketer. And so the plan then after I graduated college was like, okay, I'm going to move up the the marketing corporate ladder and I'm going to like stomp the pavement in the morning and commute into work with my coffee and my pencil skirt and heels, which is how I know it's a fantasy is I hate wearing heels. I don't think I've worn a pencil skirt since like 2011. So I got into my first job out of school and the like rose colored glasses, those came off very early. I was the only marketer at a massive like Fortune 500 company. I was realizing that I just, I was in a very like misogynistic, very like toxic work environment and realized that I didn't love the expectation that I had to sit there, butt in chair, even if my work was done, that I had to make somebody I didn't like or respect more money, that I had to, you know, ask to go on vacation and I only got to go on, you know, maybe seven, seven day vacation a year. And so I was growing my career and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And then Trump got elected. So I was graduated in May, I graduated college in May of 2016. And then Trump got elected in November. And I was coming into like womanhood and adulthood in a very different America than I think we all expected. You know, I was like, okay, first female president. Nope, just kidding. And I just, as a 22 year old, was not only again trying to figure out like who I was, but now with this like, very, very obvious rallying cry. I was like, what can I do? And it very much like radicalized me in a lot of ways. And I think it radicalized a lot of us. And so I was working a marketing job, later quit, found a new job. And I started Her First 100K in December of 2016. And it was a blog at the time. It wasn't called Her First 100K yet. And I was writing about like life as a 20-something woman. So how to navigate career, travel, all of those things. And then as I started talking with other friends of mine, as I started growing my financial stability, I realized that we don't have any sort of equality for any marginalized group until we have financial equality. That this is the thing it all kind of hinges on is if we can get money into more women, more people of color, more LGBTQ communities' hands, like everything starts to change. And I was seeing this in my own life, and I was seeing, unfortunately, the lack of money preventing women identifying friends from being able to progress in their career, progress in their life, leave a toxic situation. And so I was like, oh, this is, I think, where I can step in. I was obsessed with, you know, learning more about personal finance. And again, I had that privilege from my parents. And it was like, okay, with that privilege comes a responsibility. So we rebranded in 2019. Her first 100K kind of took off from there. And the origin story was me trying to save $100,000 at 25. That was my Her First 100K. That was my 100K goal and journey. And I successfully achieved that in like September, October of 2019. I was on Good Morning America. And three weeks later, I quit my job to take my business full time. So that was, yeah, like November 2019. Now we're a community of over 3 million. We have a podcast called Financial Feminist. That's one of the top business podcasts in the world. And we change women's lives every day. And that's my fucking favorite thing to do. Wow. Were you always this confident? Yes. (laughs) No, I'm going to be honest with you. Yes. I mean, I think it comes, confidence is a self-worth issue, a hundred percent. And I wish we talked about it more like that, is when you think you're self-worthy of love, when you think you're self-worthy of opportunities, when you think you're self-worthy of belonging, you will be confident and you will show up confident in spaces. Like, I don't suffer from imposter syndrome anymore. 
And I can remember actually the very specific moment that I stopped. I was speaking on a panel in 2019 and it was in Seattle and I was the youngest person on this panel by at least a decade. There were like financial advisors and venture capitalists and all these people who were very smart and like in the financial industry. And they all showed up in these like beautiful dresses and again, like pencil skirts and heels. And I showed up in jeans and Adidas, like white Adidas. It's very much who I am. And I remember thinking like, what the fuck am I doing here? Like everybody else is so much more qualified. No one's going to care about what I have to say. Like I shouldn't be here, right? And then the interesting thing was, is like, as we started talking and we had questions from the moderator, I looked out over the sea of people in in the audience and 95% of them, it was was like a women's leadership. So, you know, all of these women, 95% of whom were like in my target demographic. They were like late 20s, early 30s, just getting started in their career or trying to figure out how to like up-level their career. And what would happen is I would realize as, you know, know, the venture capitalist next to me who was so smart and well-spoken would start to talk. They had been in this for so long that like they used all the jargon that people didn't understand and people's eyes would glaze over. And then I would realize that when I talked and my approach made a difference and I could see their understanding on their faces. And then when we broke out, we did like small groups after that. I was the most popular small group. Like a bunch of people came and wanted to listen to the workshop I gave. And from that moment on, I was like, oh, so I might not be the oldest person in the room. I might not be the most experienced person. I might not be the most quote unquote professional person in the room, but I know that what I have to say matters. And I know the way I say it matters. And I know that I'm supposed to be here to impact at least one person. And like, I knew as a very young kid that that's what I wanted to do. I didn't know how. I didn't know how I wanted to do that. But I just love women. I love when women win, and it's my fucking favorite thing. And for me, I think the best thing we can do as women is stand in our own power and be confident because it allows and gives permission for everybody else around us to be confident too. Mm, so true. Where do you get that confidence from? Like, if you're saying you you always had it, is it like your parents? Is it theater? I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's got to be part of my parents. It's 100% got to be theater. Because yeah, like theater makes you so resilient. Because you hear no a million times, right? And I wish we talked about like theater and music and arts the same way we talk about sports. Because, you know, it's like sports are like team building. And like, it's really important for kids to be in sports. And I'm like, it is equally, if not sometimes more important for kids to be involved in the arts. Where like, I am doing just as much teamwork on a stage as I'm doing, you know, playing basketball. If somebody drops a line, I have to be in there to support them. You know, if I'm quick changing backstage, somebody's got to throw me my prop. All of these things. And yeah, you learn how to pitch yourself constantly. That's all theater is. And get rejected. And get rejected. You're going to hear a 99 no's to one yes. But I think I honestly just, I knew from a really young age, and I think it was honestly too... I was bullied pretty severely growing up. I went to parochial school. And so if you go to parochial school for the full 10 years from like pre-K to eighth grade, you're with the same like 15 kids for a decade. I'm sorry, what is parochial school? Parochial school, it is Catholic school, like private Catholic school. So yeah, it was pre-K to eighth grade. And yeah, it was with the same, yeah, like 12, 15 kids. And they were, a lot of them were mean, like from four or five years old. And I really had to figure out, am I going to assimilate and treat other people like shit in order to fit in? And am I going to change who I was? And I decided I wasn't, I wasn't going to do that. And my parents were huge in that too. 
And so I think that honestly, during some really formative years from, yeah, like four to 14 really cemented, it was like, nope, you are who you are and you're going to continue being that. And I really admire 13 year old Tori. (laughs) She stood by that. And like, that was, yeah, that was, I think a really important thing for me then. And if I had to figure out like, where does this come from? Maybe that's it. I really don't know if my theory is right. And it's a self-worth issue. Like, this is the feeling I want every woman to have. Like, I want every woman to walk into any room she's in, go, you know, going on a date, walking into a job interview, just showing up anywhere and being like, I am worthy of belonging. I'm worthy of love. I'm worthy of opportunities. I'm worthy of money. Because frankly, the entire system and society has tried to tell you repeatedly that you're not. Like, they try to keep us small, right? They try to keep us controllable. This is why they're telling us, you know, don't speak up, lose weight, do all of these things, right? They're literally trying to keep us small. And when you show up in a space, as you know, any gender identity, when you show up in a space and you you truly believe you're worthy of love and belonging and that you're worthy of good things, I think you just you just show up confident. Hey, my self-lovers, before we go on with today's podcast episode, I want to make sure that you are giving yourself the gift of self-love. The Gift of Self-Love is a book I wrote to help you build confidence, recognize your worth, and learn to finally love yourself. And it's available in stores and online worldwide. So go pick it up if you don't have it already. And if you do have it, little reminder to make sure that you are reading it and doing that work in the workbook. I poured my heart and soul into this book, compiling everything I teach at my retreats and everything we talk about on the podcast and putting it into this heartfelt, relatable, and actionable workbook for you. The cool thing is this book is a combination of me sharing everything that's helped me on my self-love journey. And it's also a workbook. So you can actually write in it and put the tools into practice right away. So it's a very integrative experience, similar to what it would be like if you came to a retreat and we were doing a workshop in person. These exercises are all in one place for you. There are quizzes, journal prompts, self-reflection exercises, self-love challenges, all of which will help you with body acceptance, mindset and self-talk, confidence and self-worth. So if you haven't gotten it yet, you can get it today by going to maryscupoftea.com slash book. You can also search for it on Amazon or at your favorite bookstore. And please take a second to check out all the amazing reviews. At this point, the book has reached thousands of people all around the world. And these reviews are so, so special to me. They literally make me cry when I read them. And I hope that this book has the same profound impact on you. So go to maryscupoftea.com slash book and give yourself the gift of self-love. You said in one of your podcast episodes, men are educated about money in a way that women aren't. And I think that makes men a lot more financially confident, if not just cocky when they have no basis to be, but that's another <laughs> another thing. Yeah. Talk to us about yeah. that. What do you mean by men are educated about money in a way that women aren't? And I think that goes into the self-worth aspect a lot too, is that when something I talk about a lot is that men don't derive all of their self-worth from their body image. So like if they gain a little bit of weight or if they're not looking their best to them, it doesn't like ruin their day because they weren't raised to feel that 
all that matters is their looks. So I'm wondering like how that transfers to financial and financial confidence. Yeah. Mary, you're asking beautiful, thoughtful questions. Thank you. I want to take it all the way back to how we were raised. This is a very stereotypical thing, but still in 2022, we're largely seeing this. When we think about even the toys we give boys when they're two, three years old, what kind of toys are we giving them? Legos, blocks, construction trucks, right? It's like things to build. And we're telling them your worth, your value, right, is in like your ingenuity and your innovation and your critical thinking and your creativity, right? Yes. What do we give girls? Dolls. We give an actual child another child to take care of. Hmm. What? We give a two-year-old child another, like fake obviously, but fake child to take care of. Easy bake ovens, like doll houses, right? We're literally telling girls from the moment they're born, two, three, four years old, we're telling them that their value in society is caretaking. Their value in society is immediately about somebody else. It's not about their own innovation, their own intelligence, their own smart thinking. It's about how can you sacrifice your needs for somebody else? How can you create, you know, a home or give of yourself? to somebody else. Literally, how can this two-year-old become a fake mother to this, this doll? Yeah. When we think about that, well, everything changes. And we can see how that can track all the way up to money, right? Men are not only taught, but rewarded when men pursue wealth. I think about like if a man posts a photo of himself on a golf course with a Rolex, the comments on Instagram are going to be like, cool Rolex, bro. You must be doing well for yourself right? But if a woman posts a photo of herself, maybe in a designer dress or something like that, the comments are like, you're so frivolous. Why are you spending so frivolously? Why aren't you donating more? Like if you have the money to buy that Chanel purse or those red bottoms, like what are you doing? That's the reason you're not rich. Or like, why aren't you giving more of yourself? We teach girls to be altruistic and then we weaponize that altruism. Yeah. In society, women are not allowed to pursue money. It is punished. It is penalized, right? And weirdly, the very things that we're expected to do as women, we're expected to, to your point about body image, we're expected to, you know, have perfect hair and perfect nails and waxed and all of these things. Those are expected of us. Those are the very things that we're then shamed for because we're told they're frivolous, right? Oh, the reason you're not rich is because you spend all your money on manicures. That's the reason you're not rich. Right. Lattes, manicures, avocado toast, right? And it's all gendered. Like it's you said in one of your episodes. Gendered. And it's the latte thing is so gendered. It's so gendered. And it's not like the reason you're not rich is because you buy NFL season tickets. Right. Yeah. I've never heard that. Yeah. Have you thought about, okay, the rebuttal to this? I always try to think about, because I have these conversations in my head, I always try to think about what somebody that's not familiar with feminism and doesn't really look into social forces because they have the privilege to be ignorant. But one thing that is so easy to say is like, well, no one's stopping you. Women can go golfing. Women can buy a Rolex. No one's stopping you, all this stuff. But when you say women are penalized or punished or have consequences or reprimanded for acting a certain way or buying something or being like scrutinized, critiqued, those aren't necessarily like punishments like go to jail. They're called social consequences. So it's like if a man was bombarded with those kinds of social 
forces, social consequences, it would be much different. So I think it's way too, I think it's a cop-out to be like, well, nobody's stopping you from spending your time on the golf course or learning about investing or buying yourself nice things and posting about it. Well, yes, no one's stopping us, but actually there are forces stopping us because there are social consequences like being shunned from a group, being bullied online, being even rejected by your family or seen as a certain way. Like those are consequences. Totally. And we exist, of course, in a society of deep systemic oppression. So all of these are personal choices, which, yes, ultimately, if you completely ignore the like social pressure, which you can't do, yes, these are individual choices. However, individual choices only make up for like 10, 20% of the personal finance equation. The 80, 90% is the billion-dollar student debt crisis. The racism, sexism, ableism of society and how it costs more to be a member of a marginalized group. It is very expensive to be poor, especially in the United States. It is extremely expensive to be poor, right? And you and I are recording this as we have discovered yesterday that Roe versus Wade is most likely to be overturned, right? And you think about an issue like that, abortion, access to abortion is 100% a financial issue. 60% of people who terminate pregnancies already have children. So that means that they are terminating a pregnancy because typically they cannot financially support another child, right? Because if you have two children, now your resources are split in half. If you're forced to have a third, well, now your resources are split into thirds. And we're talking typically about people who are lower income, who are people of color, who do not have a lot of resources to begin with because Women like myself who are financially stable, who are white, who live in a liberal state, we will always have access to abortion. Even if it's not legal, we will have access to it. And so you think about like those sorts of things that are so like so much bigger than your personal choices, stagnating wages, cost of living increases, inflation now at like the highest percent we've seen in 40 something years. So all of these things that exist outside of people's personal choices, 100%, they're the biggest influences in how we manage our money. And in addition, even the financial system itself was not built with women in mind, right? The financial system, the whole world was built by cisgendered straight white men, right? So when you think about, like, I'm recording this from Brooklyn. If I was to take a 30-minute subway into the financial district and you look at Wall Street, if you guys have been to New York or lived in New York, you know this, but the symbol of Wall Street is this ginormous bowl sculpture, It's this huge, like, I think it's something like 12-ton bull sculpture that sits outside Wall Street. And what do people do? It's common for tourists to not only gather around this statue and take pictures, but to grab the bull's testicles for financial prosperity. That's a thing. It's like going up and, like, rubbing this bull's balls to become, like, financially stable. And, like, if you look at that example, you're like, of course women don't feel welcome here. Of course this doesn't feel accessible to us. It's a literal, like, huge masculine symbol with a set of, you know, (laughs) set of balls who you, like, (laughs) of course we don't feel welcome. Of course this doesn't feel like it's for us. And that's an active choice. The patriarchy has actively gatekept this information from us because, again, it keeps us controllable. If we don't know how to grow our wealth, if we don't know how to establish financial stability for ourselves because they gatekept this information, well, they get to stay in power. They get to be cushy and comfortable, and they get to stay in power. 
And so the more they tell us, mm, talking about money is taboo, you shouldn't do it, or investing is too complicated, you shouldn't worry about it, or again, why are you spending money on frivolous things? That's why you're not rich. The more we believe these narratives, the more the patriarchy wins. Mm, so true. And it's like you said, even that one example, it's inescapable. Like it's absurd. It shows up in big ways and small ways. And, and we don't stop to think about it so much. And wealth or this country and so many other countries were made by cis white men who have caretakers at home taking care of their children and folding their laundry yep. and cooking for them. Yep. It's all purposeful. So all that doom and gloom aside, I actually listened to a three-minute NPR and it was so doom and gloom about interest rate hike. The, like you said, the largest in 40 years. We're at like a what, almost 6% now. This girl, yeah, I've given up on trying to buy real estate this year and it's incredibly discouraging. I'm wondering if you have like three or a few tips for investing specifically for women, specifically for women who might like have a good job and maybe not that much debt aside from a little student loan debt or a car or something like that. At least that's the situation that I'm in. I have student loan debt, I have a car, and I've invested some, but I feel like I'm throwing spaghetti at the wall and I have no idea what I'm doing. I've lost a bunch in the stock market. I mean, not lost because I haven't Girl, withdrawn. I got you. Yeah. Like, yeah. This is a self. Oh, even that you know that. That's great. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. Okay. First thing, just in general about personal finance, there is so much shame and judgment. And I need you as much as you can to let that shit go. Like doing the like, I should have done this sooner, or why didn't I know this sooner? I've like fucked up so many times. Like that doesn't help. Or like, I have so much debt, I'm a bad person. Like these are all narratives again that are perpetuated. It's not really your fault. It's okay. Like we're here today. We're gonna move forward from now. Okay, investing. I'm going to shamelessly plug right off the top because I've literally built an investing education app because everything out there I thought prior to this app sucked. And it's called Treasury. If you go to treasury.app, you can find it. We literally start with a workshop live with me. Where I'm actually giving one tonight to like a thousand people that takes you step by step through like how to start investing, what is the mistakes investors make, how to actually choose your investments. We actually get you set up with an investment account because even we see a lot of women like they analysis paralysis. They're like, I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. So we actually get you started live on the workshop. So the last time we gave a workshop, we had, yeah, a thousand people, 80% of whom were first-time investors. And they collectively invested more than $130,000, which was so fucking cool. So that was my shameless plug. I would love to see you there. We're going to teach you step by step. Okay, a couple of things with investing. One, if you do have a 401k, something like an IRA, which is an individual retirement account, if you haven't opened one, these are your best ways to invest because the government's giving you what's called tax breaks, right? So they're tax advantage retirement accounts. So the government is giving you tax breaks in order to incentivize you to save for retirement. So they're dangling a carrot and they're saying like, hi, if you invest a little bit for your own retirement, we're going to make your life slightly easier. And the government gives us very little in terms of tax breaks. So a lot of people come to me and they go, I want to start investing. I go, well, do you have a 401k? And they go, well, yeah, but that doesn't really count. And I'm like, no, it, it counts. And it actually is the best way to invest. So if you are not already doing everything you can to A, open these accounts, but B, max them out, max out your 401k, max out your IRA, that's going to be one of your best ways of taking advantage of investing. Can I ask a follow-up question? You did a whole post yeah. on this and I absorbed it. So I have like a solo 401k and what people don't know is when you put money in it, you also have to 
buy stuff with it. Is that number two? Okay, I'm getting it. That was literally number two. And I love it. No, so people think that investing is like opening a bank account because again, no one taught us differently. So you go into a bank, right? You open a bank account and you put a thousand dollars in and you're like, cool, I have a thousand dollars in my bank account. And people think that investing is the same thing. It is not. You have a step two that you have to do. And this is actually the number one mistake I see investors make. And again, we talk more about this in the treasury workshop. But when you put money in an investing account, that is just step one. Step two is you have to go buy things with the money. A IRA, a 401k, that is not an investment. That is an investing account that holds your investments. So when you go and you open up your 401k and you put, let's say, $1,000 in it, you then have to take that $1,000 and go actually purchase your investments. It's like a gift card, right? Like I put $1,000 in a TJ Maxx gift card, which is crazy, like shopping spree. But then I need to go buy my candles and plants and throw pillows. That $1,000 on a credit card is not doing me any good unless I actually go buy things with it. So what I see a lot is women will put their money into an account like a 401k or an IRA or a brokerage account, which is just a fancy way of saying like a general investing account that's not for retirement. And they'll go, cool, I'm invested. I'm done. You're not done. And if you don't do step two, not only is your money, of course, not invested, it's not earning you anything. It's in like financial purgatory. It's just sitting there waiting to be invested. And I've told this story on the Financial Feminist Podcast, but I was sitting on a panel once with a financial advisor who talked about, she had this beautiful client, let's call her Rose, and Rose was a teacher. And Rose put aside like $100, $200 every paycheck into her retirement account, into her 401k or whatever it was for teachers at that time. She did this for 35 years. As she set aside, she did you know diligent, diligent saving and investing. And then she was like 65, 70, and it was time for her to retire. And she went and she looked at her account, and she had never actually invested the money. No. That means it was losing money because inflation. It was losing money to inflation, yes. And also, it's not even earning you like savings account interest, which is like nothing, because it was just sitting there. So yes, she had like $300,000, but that $300,000 would have been multi-millions of dollars. And, you know, $300,000 sounds like a lot, but trying to live for 20, 30 years, the rest of your life on $30,000 is, you know, $300,000 is not a lot of money. And so I just think of that story and like, uh, it makes me like so angry and also want to tear up at the same time. Like that's, I'm trying to prevent more roses from happening. Like that's the number one mistake I see. So if you're listening to this and you already have an account and you're like, God, I don't know if I invested it, go check go check. And we can, again, help you in treasury check. Or the best way to see is like, have your investments grown or slightly like diminished? That's the best way to figure it out. If it's the exact same amount of money that you put in, you're probably not invested. You're almost (laughs) definitely not invested, right? And if you are a new investor and you're going to get started, please make sure you actually do step two. Please, God. So I'm heading over to treasury as soon as we're done here. But what I did was, so I have TD Ameritrade. And it's a little yep. different for that's who we partner with the treasury. Oh, really? Yep. Awesome. So it's a little yeah. different for self-employed, but they a couple of years back released the solo 401k. So I'll just call it a 401k for simplicity's sake. So I have a 401k also on TD. I have like a regular, like I have two separate, like I have one 
with a company and then one for myself. And then that one with the 401k, I went and invested, but I got overwhelmed because I already lost so much money in my personal stocks. I didn't want to like go and handpick stocks to buy and try to guess if Apple was going to grow. Are you getting there? No, but here's the thing is a lot of people think investing is like Leo DiCaprio, like yelling into a phone, right? Like Wolf of Wall Street style, like about like individual stocks. The smartest kind of investing is not individual stocks. And again, we talk about this in very great detail in Treasury, but part of investing is what's called diversification. And it's just a fancy way of saying, don't put all of your eggs in one basket. So you can buy individual stocks, but what happens is if you're trying to pick stocks, one, you're spending a lot of time trying to research that like my dad has because the stock market's a hobby for my dad. It's like golf in the stock market, right? (laughs) So that's like, my dad can do that. That's fine. I love my dad, but I don't have time to do that. Most people don't have time to do that. It's not a hobby for me. And in trying to pick individual stocks, not only is there a ton of research, it's also you are actively trying to like beat the stock market, something that even professionals have consistently been unable to do. Like people who get paid, hedge fund managers who get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars on salary a year are not good at their jobs. So it's like, I don't trust that I'm going to be good at this, right? If like a professional is not very good. So there are funds, there are groups of stocks that you can invest in that do this diversification for you. You can buy one share of a fund that has every single company in the stock market within that fund. So I bought Vanguard. Vanguard is like a brokerage account. Do you know what you bought? Do you know like the stock ticker or the nickname? Yeah, like I bought the, I'll tell you right now. Did you buy VTI? Um, I think so. Because that's what I read. I was like, I don't want to handpick like I did for my personal one. And instead I went and I just like bought the, what are they called? The um, They're called index funds yes. or mutual funds, ETFs. These are all the kind of funds. And again, we break this down in treasury. And again, I'm shamelessly plugging it because again, it's so complicated anywhere else. And it's also like it's jargony or Wall Street bro-y. And we purposely built something that isn't because it's super complex. And then, yeah. I'm totally heading over there. V-O-O. Oh, yeah. V-O-O. Yeah. So it's called the stock ticker. It's really just the nickname of the fund because typically these funds have like a six, seven word name and it's like a mouthful. So yeah, what you're doing is you're trying to diversify, which is a very smart move. Ultimately, you have to make your own choices. I'm not a financial advisor. I don't know you, a, a random listener. I don't know your life. I don't know your goals. But one of the ways, again, if we were thinking about like diversifying is rather than just trying to buy Tesla or Bumble or Shopify, it's like if I can buy one share of a fund that's typically also cheaper, like a share of Tesla right now is like $800. A share of VTI or VOO is about $200. And you own, again, like the entire stock market. So my personal favorite, again, me personally, I love VTI. VTI. I like live and die by VTI because VTI is the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund, which means it includes every single company in the U.S. stock market in like a one-stop shop. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And I think you were getting here and telling me like, don't freak out if you see it dip because... Yes, that was... (laughs) The thing with investing, the definition of the word invest is to put time and energy into something with expecting a worthwhile result over a long period, right? So you're putting money and energy into something when you invest in yourself, right? As it's like, I don't expect to see immediate results. So when we think about the word investing or investing in the stock market, the short-term investing that you'll see a lot on places like TikTok or Reddit, which is like day trading and like buying a stock now and selling it two days later, like that is not investing. That is gambling. That is gambling. And so 
a lot of people are really worried about losing money in the stock market. The way you don't lose money is you buy and you hold for a very long time. I'm talking not like a year. I'm talking decades. We're in this for the long haul, right? Especially if we're investing for retirement and we're in our 20s, 30s, even 40s, right? You're investing for a very long time. You're investing for 10, 20, 30, sometimes 40 years. So what happens on a random Wednesday doesn't really matter. It truly doesn't. And Mary, you already said this, which I absolutely love and I so appreciate that you know this. You have not lost or gained money until you sell your investment. So when you buy it and it goes up and down in price, technically you're kind of like in a monopoly money territory where it's almost like not real unless you sell, like unless you liquidate your investments. So, you know, if the stock market's down, We know from 125 years of the stock market, even in 2008, even in the Great Depression, right? Like all of these very down periods, they have recovered and recovered like double, triple, quadruple where they were before. So if you're worried about losing money, the key is to buy and hold. The key is to think about investing as a long-term roller coaster where you're going to have some ups and you're going to be loving it and you're going to have some downs and you maybe don't look at it right then and then you're going to go up again, right? The vast majority, again, of investments have gone up over 125 years and we're in this for the very long haul. We're not in this to buy and sell in a day or even a year or even a couple years. We're in this for a very long time. Mm. Yeah, because even like, I was one of those who bought during the pandemic because everybody thought that that was the low, Mm -hmm. but then it wasn't. It was actually like the high and then it went down from there. The other thing that I talk about all the time is, I mean, this is a conversation about media in general, but financial media is no different than any other media. They're going to put the crazy headlines that get you to click. Their job is to not regulate your emotions. Their job is to heighten your emotions in order for you to click on their piece and make them money. So when you see something like a CNBC going like, the stock market is down the most it's ever been in two years, that might be true. However, if the stock market's down the lowest it's been in two years, we have been on upwards climb since 2008 and extremely upwards. So yes, it may have dipped where it was. It still is not that bad. And yeah, again, they're a media company trying to get clicks on their pieces. So part of like investing, really a huge chunk of it, and it's actually the thing that makes women better investors, we know that statistically, is we're better at regulating our emotions. (laughs) Men will go out here and buy, and then they'll sell, (laughs) and then they'll buy, and then they'll panic, and then they'll sell. The key is to just like stay the course, understand why you're doing it, understand again that even a bad year is nothing in the grand scheme of 10 years, 20, 30, 40. So you're also going to see a lot of different media different even people, you know, influencers who might do what I do saying that sort of thing. And I would just be really, really cautious about who you receive info from and also what kind of info you take seriously. Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't understand that aside from them being a media company and getting clicks and ad revenue from everything that we watch and read, there's also like, not to get like super deep into it, but there's also forces at play that want you to sell. Right. Like there are people who big funds and whatever, like they almost want the stock market to crash. They can buy low and sell high. Like there are people with ulterior motives and there are people like trying to manipulate the general public. And you've got to follow your credible source, stay grounded, stay educated and not not buy into that panic. Yeah, because what happens is every stock market downturn, like severe downturn we've seen, like again, you take 2008 as an example, the Great Recession. 
what happened was people started to panic. And that's why it was so bad, was you had a couple people at the beginning start to sell. And then a bunch of people saw them selling and they're like, well, I guess I need to sell, right? And then it becomes this immediate avalanche. And, you know, it's like the, <laughs> I was talking to I'm a Kristen, my podcast manager, and she's like, it's like the toilet paper roll, right? It's like once you push it, it just keeps rolling. And that's why, again, like if you actually want to prevent your stocks from going down, like don't be part of people who panic because that's what causes all of the chaos is a couple people panic and then more people panic and more people see them panicking and we stay the course. We stay the course, my friends. Hmm. Well, I asked your assistant over email, what you've been quietly passionate about. And I don't know if your answer has changed, but one thing that- I'm trying to remember what I said. (laughs) Okay. Well, I'll remind you. And then if it's changed, feel free to ignore me. You said, I've been thinking a lot about the cost of fame, the pedestals we put people on, and the shock and anger we feel when we inevitably fall off of those same pedestals. Now, this you said before the Met. So let me just say that it's not necessarily directed towards anyone in particular. Tell us more about that. I mean, how long do we have? I am very, very, very lowercase f famous. Like I've gotten now a little bit of a taste of it. It's like every other time I go out now, I get recognized by somebody. And when I'm in Seattle, I get recognized a lot more. I will preface, please come up to me if you see me and recognize me. It's lovely. It's very sweet. People are lovely and amazing. It's just very interesting. Like none of this is quote unquote bad. It's just really interesting. I think about the fact that I will be potentially watched anywhere I go. And somebody might tell me that they've been watching me by coming up to me. And again, this is not bad. Please come up to me. But it's really interesting. And it's also this pressure and this realization that in having a platform that people will put you on a pedestal and glorify you and assume a lot about you and be in a parasocial relationship with you, just like I am with Timothy Chalamet. And what happens is these people will inevitably make a mistake. I will make a mistake. You will make a mistake. People will make mistakes because we are people. And the very pedestals that people have put us on then get knocked out from under us when we make a mistake. Now, plenty of these people who have gotten pedestals deserve to have their pedestals knocked away from them. Harvey Weinstein, perfect example, does not deserve a pedestal, right? I think there's plenty of other people who, you know, are trying their best and fuck up and then acknowledge they fucked up and try to do better, but have been, I don't know if demonize is the right word, but we're just really interesting as human beings because, again, we put people on pedestals and then we really get excited when they fall. We like sit there with popcorn a little bit. It makes us feel better to watch somebody quote unquote successful fuck up because it makes us feel better. It's why we watch reality TV, right? Is it's like, oh, I'm not that fucked up. You know, like, oh, these people doing crazy shit. You know, it makes us feel better about ourselves. And so I have been thinking now as someone who has more of a platform that if I've done my job correctly, I've created a community that will not only, of course, give me feedback and call me on my shit as they should, but also hold space for me to grow. And I think we all really hope that. And when I go to sleep at night, sometimes I'm scared that they won't. And that's that's very scary. It's very scary because I am very ambitious. I want a lot of things, but I don't ever want to be glorified in any way. 
for many, many, many reasons. But I also, you know, like, I don't want you to put me on a pedestal and then be shocked when I fall off that same pedestal. Because <laughs> I will. I will. If you put me on a pedestal, I will fall off it because I'm a human being. I just hope you will give me grace when that happens and also hold space for me to grow and to learn from the mistakes. So yeah, it's just, it's really interesting as I've been thinking more about that and thinking about, yeah, like starting to date and navigate that. If you do a preliminary Google on me before we got on a first date, you have a lot of information about me. You know a lot about, you know, potentially my net worth. You know that I have a platform. You know all of these things. And it's also, it's really interesting to hear feedback from people I've gone on dates with where I've been recognized on a date. It's like a cool flex and I love it. (laughs) But they also, they're like, oh, this is what you're working with all the time. And realizing that this affects the other people in my life, even though they didn't choose it. And that if, you know, I start dating somebody more seriously and I bring them into the fold, like this is going to impact them too. And they didn't choose it. So yeah, again, it's a lot of things and a lot of things I'm working through and none of it bad. It's just different. And it's just, it's beautiful and lovely. And the fact that, you know, my work has reached people and it's, again, my favorite thing. It's just very different than what my life was a couple of years ago. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Different is the best way to describe it. I think the psychological phenomenon is like whether they're glorifying you or canceling you, it still like creates this separateness. Like we are different. Mm -hmm. We are separate, us versus them, like you versus me. I'm not like you. So that's why it's like whether it's a lot of applause or a lot of tomato throwing, (laughs) the theater reference. P.S. I was like so stoked to find out that Rotten Tomatoes comes from that. <laughs> like, I didn't realize that till yeah. now. That's so obvious, but I didn't realize <laughs> I know, that. know, it just clicks, right? Yeah, it's like whether oh, it's, it's good or bad, it's still like pretending like people are so different from you. Like we're all the same. We all like, did you see that meme with like the skeleton? And it's like, how can people be mean to each other when we all die like this? It's just this like really ugly ass skeleton. <laughs> oh, funny. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is too, I mean, again, I have my own parasocial relationships, but like, you know, when you admire somebody's work, you believe that you know them and you know really that you don't, but like, and I'm sure you feel this way. Like when you show up as authentically as you can in a public space, people feel connected to you. And I think that's really beautiful, but then they start assuming they A, know what's best for you or B, that they get to give you feedback all the time. A lot of it's not warranted or valid. And so that's the other part of it. It's just like your life, whether you like it or not, is constantly on display. And I think I feel a little bit like that. I feel a little bit like uh, an animal in a zoo a little bit. And again, I chose this. Like I am so thankful for it. It's just a new existence. And I'm trying to figure out what it means to have people walk by and tap the glass and be like, hello hello, I would like you to perform for me or, you know, just people passively watching me. And uh, it's just, it's just very different. And again, like I'm not Lady Gaga, I'm not Taylor Swift. Like these people have an insane, like, I do not like, that's crazy to me, that level of fame. Like, how do you have any privacy? How do you have any, like, how do you do that? I don't know. I've gotten the tiniest little taste of it and I'm like, oof. Yeah. Okay. I feel like I would really lose myself at that level. I remember when like, Lindsay Lohan and stuff was struggling and everybody was making fun of her. I had this thought. I was really young, but I had this thought. I was like, you know, if I was in the public eye that much, I would probably do drugs too. Like I have so much compassion for that experience because it's 
unlike any other, I think. And it's isolating because not a lot of people understand. Not a lot of people will have compassion for it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And you're around it and you're not maybe told that it's something that you shouldn't do. And also, yeah, there's so many aspects to that that I think we're just now waking up to like, oh, maybe we shouldn't have shot on Britney Spears when she had a full mental breakdown. Like, yeah. maybe that mm-hmm. would have not been a good thing to do. <laughs> like, or Monica Lewinsky, like, perfect example, like, of mm-hmm. just we're realizing like how shitty we treated women in the late 90s, early 2000s, how shitty we treat women in general, but especially during that time with tabloids and everything. And so, yeah, I think that that's something I've been thinking a lot about and working through and I'm so thankful for it. Like I'm so thankful that my work has impacted people. And again, none of this is bad. It's just a new phenomenon and something I am learning to work through. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that with us. Of course. Do you have any final closing thoughts before we farewell or anything you want our listeners to go do or find you on the social medias, download the Treasury app and sign up for the classes and start investing? Yeah. Treasury is available on the website. You can't find it in the app store, at least not yet. So if you go to treasury.app, I'll give Mary a link too. My final closing thought, a financial education is your best form of protest. In a society and a system that actively does not want you to have money, having a financial foundation, having financial stability is your best form of agency and your best form of protest. And yeah, I'm her first hundred K on all the socials, H-E-R-F-I-R-S-T one zero zero K. We also have the Financial Feminist Podcast and would love to see you there. The Financial Feminist Podcast is the shit and you're currently in like, it's like season two, but you're doing like consistent it's really, yeah, it's like we're calling it season two, but it's kind of like not season two because it's now just forever. So yeah, we're doing six episodes a month. Wow. So yeah. I've been loving it. Highly recommend. Thank you so much, Tori. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with us and for being here and being so incredibly open about topics that women usually aren't. So we really appreciate that as a collective. Always. Thanks for having me. Hey, self-lovers, one last little thing before we farewell. If you've been enjoying the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast, I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave a re- leave a review. <laughs> I was going to cut that out, but we'll just keep it in there. If you could leave a review on Apple or rate the show on Spotify. Your feedback helps the podcast grow. And as someone whose love language is words of affirmation, your kind words mean the world to me. Just search the show on Apple, scroll all the way down where you'll see a place to weave a review. (laughs) And if you're listening on Spotify, on the show's homepage, you'll see a little star. And if you click on that, there'll be a pop-up box where you can send in your rating. Thank you so much for helping me spread the gift of self-love. And speaking of the gift of self-love, that is the title of my book. You can pick it up at any bookstore, including Amazon, Target, Barnes & Noble, small indie bookstores. All those links can be found at maryscupoftea.com slash book. Thank you all so much for learning and growing and continuing to be on this self-love journey. It's truly an honor to be here with you. I love you and I will talk to you next time. And please, please don't forget to leave a review. (laughs) Bye.